All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the actual Anarchy Podcast, a podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho capitalist perspective. And tonight, if you can't tell behind me, it's the Boston skyline, and we're going to be talking about a movie set in Boston. It is a Mel Gibson film called The Edge of Darkness, and, and hence the night scene. Uh, this is episode 172 of the show. You can see the little scroll bar down at the bottom. We're experimenting with new stuff on the, uh, the software we're using to make this here show. Uh, you can find the show notes more at that link, actualanarchy.com slash 172. My co-host is Robert. Let's check in with him. How are things down on the sidelines there, Robert? You have restarted your business. You guys are back at it again. Uh, looking at, I think last time we talked, you're looking at new locations, perhaps a lease or purchase. And I think in the pre-show, which is available for Patreon supporters, you were talking about, in fact, hiring somebody just so that you could exploit them. Yes, Daniel, that is true. Uh, we are looking to hire people. We're always hiring, looking for good people. Um, it might be a topic of discussion, actually, for this show, what we're kind of dealing with. I'm not ready to discuss it now, and we'd have to use pseudonyms or other names. But um, yeah, just let me say that uh, hiring people in the um, restaurant industry in uh, Washington State uh, presents its own challenges and also has solutions if you're willing to take them. That serious. Is- Interesting. I remember working in such an establishment, and this was probably 20, 25 years ago now, but there were certain qualifications with which I had to attain via state uh, regulations that I had to take a class and a test and and get some kind of a permit of sorts. I imagine it's much worse now. And and as I also have a business myself, uh, I get all these notifications about the paid family leave and other uh, new requirements of me as a, a potential employer, even though I only exploit myself. I, I don't actually employ anyone else. So some of that stuff doesn't apply to me, but I imagine that it would apply to you. Not only that, but the increased minimum wage with which you uh, are burdened with to, how shall we say, price labor out of a job. So you have to do more as an employer yourself. Absolutely. 100%, Daniel. We can't just hire somebody for 5 6 $7 an hour, even though we've had people offer that. There have been people that have been very, it's a very economically downturned county. It's the poorest county and also the largest county in Washington. And there are many people that um, have offered to work for less than the minimum. But of course, we are not legally able to do so. So it is it limits, like you said, it limits the number of people that we can hire and ensures that uh, us greedy capitalists don't just get to sit back on our fat cat stacks of cash and smoke cigars all day. We actually have to do something which is outrageous. That is outrageous, and I am outraged on your behalf. Now, speaking of cigars, cigars do play a pretty prominent role in the movie we're talking about tonight, as do, do cigars play a role with our guest, who will we be whoa, interviewing? Whoa, 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 whoa. Just a moment. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I got Wait. something to get off. I got to get off my chest, Daniel. All right, get it off your chest. I'm sorry. I got to interrupt this previously scheduled broadcast. But I'm wondering, when are the preppers going to get their apology? <laughs> you know, preppers, 
they have been snickered at. They've been belittled. They have been mocked as just, why would you do that? Why are you? But now they're sitting on their toilet paper thrones, laughing at all us dummies and looking like geniuses. But, you know, it's just really funny how little respect preppers get. They're kind of like, there's a show about them. Like, what are these weird people that prepare for things? And I'm not saying take it to the extreme of like putting all your money and building a bunker or whatever, but just having some supplies all of a sudden seems like a pretty smart thing to do. And uh, beats uh, fighting some lady in a supermarket aisle for a roll of toilet paper. I don't know. What do you think, Daniel? I saw that video and it was, um, it's one of those things like you, you pass an accident on the highway and you kind of rubberneck. You know, you shouldn't, but you do uh, because it's, I don't know, something to look at. And, and yeah, so I saw that video and yeah, as a prepper myself and my wife, uh, we have sort of slacked off on the amount of prep that we do because, you know, once the other crisis, the 2008 crisis sort of kind of slowly recovered ish with a bunch of stimulus money getting pumped into the system, inflating yet another bigger bubble that's probably going to burst anytime now. Uh, but we haven't been as preppy though. Whenever we go to Costco, it's like, I always buy as much as will fit my car. And with the coronavirus thing, everyone's buying all the toilet paper for whatever reason. I, maybe they think it's like dysentery, like everyone's going to get the shits or something. Um, I didn't have to do this because I accidentally bought extra because I didn't realize that we had already had uh, a whole bundle of it from Costco in our shed. And I went to Costco and I bought another one. And then we had ordered one uh, from Costco delivery. And so I think we got a shit ton of shit paper in our shed. So it's a shit ton of shit paper in the shed. Say that three times fast. Uh, and that's just like incidental, like that, that was unintentional prepping. Um, but I think it's just in our nature, it was burned into us, uh, forged in the fires of the great recession. Indeed. Yes. And now here you are back in 2020 and everybody's all of a sudden thinking it's a good idea to stock up. So I, I mean, be prepared, but, uh, you know, don't kill anybody over some toilet paper. I, there are, you have options. Indeed, we do have options. And let's get back to uh, talking about this movie. We're going to be introducing our guest. Cigars are important to him. Cigars are relevant to the movie. We're going to be talking about cigars tonight, along with a bunch of other good stuff, uh, uh, as we discussed. Oh, <laughs> and Blue Dresses, uh, it's the Edge of Darkness, uh, coming up right after this. Hey everyone, it's Daniel Elwood and Robert Johnson, The Last Nighters, and The Last Nighters can be found on Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. Check it out at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Last week, we are talking about The Last of the Mohicans. Tonight, we're going to be talking about The Edge of Darkness. So just in case there wasn't enough toxic masculinity last week, we're going to up the dose tonight with the professional asshole. He's been on a couple of times in the past. He was on for The Last Jedi. He was on for uh, Legends of the Fall. I want to say there was something else you were on for, uh, professional asshole. Do you recall? Uh, minimally 310 to Yuma. And I think we also, yeah, there was something else we did and I can't remember what it was. Well, I will find all of them and put them on the show notes page at lastnighter.com slash 115. That is the show episode 115 of this particular show. Um, remind everyone who you are and anything you want to like, you know, throw out there as a link or what have you. And uh, then we'll, then we'll kick this off with the uh, discussion. Oh, I do my absolute best to remain internet anonymous. So, you know, the best place to catch me is um, just down at your local liquor store, making fun of people who can't take care of themselves, being a general misanthrope, hoping people starve. That's 
that's where to find me, man. All right. Well, there you are giving us libertarians a bad name, which, uh, you know, maybe we need that <laughs> a little bit. Well, you guys were talking about getting into fights with women in the Costco. So, I mean, that is like peak professional asshole. That's, that is me to a T. Yeah, we, we do learn from the best. And uh, we'll, of course, have all your previous appearances on the show notes page um, uh, at 1.15. We also had about 40 minutes uh, of pre-show content available for our Patreon supporters, lastnighter.com slash Patreon. So uh, throw some dollars our way and, and you audience members can get into that action. Um, Professional Asshole is also a Patreon supporter and a fan of the show. He was telling us earlier, I don't know if he'll, uh, now that we're live, actually admit to this, but he does listen to the show. Uh, and thinks that we have interesting things to say. I think I'm not I'm just not trying to put words in your mouth. They're professional asshole, but uh, I, I'm just that's, trying that's to. That's the least. That's the least terrible thing you've tried to put in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Set him up, you knock him down. All right, so let's uh, let's kick this thing off with the Google description, like we do, and um, I will go to Robert with uh, the initial reaction. All right, so this came out uh, 2010, Edge of Darkness. It's a drama slash mystery film, one hour, 57 minutes, rated R, 6.6 on the IMDb, 56% Rotten Tomatoes, 55% Metacritic, so pretty much uh, middle of the road on the critics, but 86% of Google users liked it. The description is, when the only daughter of a Boston homicide detective, Thomas Craven, played by Mel Gibson, is shot on his doorstep, everyone assumes that he was the intended target. Then evidence suggests otherwise, and Craven sets out to find her killer, and in the process uncovers her secret life, corporate cover-ups, government collusion, and... Murder. Came out January 29 uh, of 2010. The director is Martin Campbell. He also did Casino Royale, one of the Bond films. Box office of $81.1 million on a budget of $80 million. So uh, probably didn't make too much money, which you account for marketing aspects. But um, my opinion, a pretty good film, if a little convoluted. Uh, but Robert, I'll go to your reaction. Well, that description ruins the mystery of the movie. Uh, movie's absolutely a mystery. And I would highly recommend going in absolutely dark. And I'd also highly recommend not having watched the movie eight years ago and then slowly come to the realization that, realization that you've already seen this movie and then realize you know where it's going and what's going to happen as the movie progresses. So yeah, it I, I ruined this movie, spoiled it for myself already unknowingly many years ago. And uh, yeah, I think it hampered my enjoyment of the film. I'm going to have to lean on you guys as far as surprises or shocks or enjoyment of the plot and the story because as soon as i realized i'd seen it as soon as i see saw that him picking up the, this daughter and then she gets shot in the door and i'm like oh no i know this movie and then it was all kind of downhill from there i still appreciate you know the acting and the the whatnot but uh it was unfortunate to uh have it all spoiled for me but, okay all right i think yeah, it worked best as a mystery in my opinion Okay, and, and that does happen fairly early in the film, um, but I, I wonder if that's a bit of an indictment of the movie because you didn't have recollection of having seen it before. Yes, unfortunately, may very forgettable. Maybe, maybe I, you know, watched it drunk one day. I don't know. Okay. Well, let's not let's not uh, you know put it past Mel Gibson movies to be highly repeatable. I mean, uh, as South Park said, the man understands story structure, but his stories are almost all the exact same. It's lonely man out for revenge, having lost his wife and/or daughter or kid or whatever. He's always the lone man without a woman in his life who goes nuts with nothing to lose and goes on a killing spree. It's just this is classic. I mean, you go back to uh, the Road Warrior, you go to any of the Lethal Weapons, you go to Braveheart. In all these movies, his wife is dead, killed in some way, and he is out for revenge because he has nothing to live for. So 
you know, I really, in this case, you know, Mel Gibson's just gotten so old, he has to have a daughter as opposed to a wife, but he didn't even have a wife in this one. So he's, you know, I can understand where you'd be seeing this and thinking, oh, Jesus, is this that Mel Gibson movie or the other exactly the same Mel Gibson movie? <laughs> Slightly older Mel Gibson. <laughs> Although he's still yeah, badass run together. Yeah, I don't know. yeah, he's still badass at 55 there, not going to lie. Yeah, yeah all right. So, so professional asshole. It seems like you 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 have an angle to bring to this uh, right off the bat. But what's your take on the Google description? And then uh, I guess you've you kind of already blown your wad on this response to this question. But what made you suggest this one for this this fine show here? Well, I think it just combines two really good aspects that uh, you know libertarians ought to talk about. Uh, the first being that there's obvious strong government collusion involved with this, which requires the uh, secondary protagonist, the daughter to engage in what are otherwise illegal actions in order to enforce what is a greater moral law. And of course, the government itself is breaking the law in concert with a with a private enterprise. But because um, of the government-private sector collusion, she can't take any legal pathways to actually re- reveal this illegal activity. Uh, so she has to break the law in order to make sure that uh, effectively, you know, illegal and unnecessary wars aren't fought. But of course, the second and probably more important thing is just the inherent um, importance of the father-daughter dynamic as it applies to um, the existence of society and what it does to create an impetus for male achievement. All right. Well, I think that's a pretty strong reason to be doing this on the show. And and that is an angle I wanted to approach was the whistleblower aspect and why, oh, why would she go to the senator who is obviously in on this. Um, I mean, and I know that, you know, the Obama administration, he campaigned on whistleblowers will be uh, treated fairly and, and uh, not persecuted or whatever. And of course he went back on that promise. Like every campaign promise is, is almost immediately revoked except for the bad things that they <laughs> say they're, that they're willing to do. Um, but, you know, whistleblowers are treated like shit. And in this movie, yeah, she's treated like shit. She's irradiated. But yeah. also, they, they make it um, this rogue private company that is going off book and going against the their handlers, um, you know, confines or whatever. So so it's almost as if the government's not exactly doing the wrong thing here. It's it's because of this oligarch who's like maniacal and evil. Uh, but well, he went off book by handling his own security, right? Yeah, as right. opposed to having the government security. That's what yeah. No, I mean that. they they clearly say in the private conversation that the senator and whatever the bureaucrat's name is that supports him know that um, the government is creating jihadi specification dirty bombs in order to frame uh, foreign countries if for some reason there's a necessary nuclear attack. Right. And beyond that. Um, what I thought was really funny, I, I know that this is – I'm not going to defend the Republicans for their warmongering, but did any of you notice that the senator from Massachusetts was a Republican? Yeah, that hasn't happened in a while. It's like, yeah, the, the last one was Scott Brown who was appointed to finish out uh, Ted Kennedy's uh, term and then immediately was replaced with a Democrat. Other than that, there has not been a Republican senator from Massachusetts for 60 well, years we got to have a credible villain here come on he's got to exactly, be exactly right this, yeah the republican <laughs> the warmongering republican aspect it's like i could understand just being a warmongering republican from wyoming or mm. texas or mm. whatever but massachusetts give me a fucking break man mm. yeah well they had a basis in uh boston for whatever reason the the source material is uh british it's a bbc show from the 90s and the same director actually directed that for the bbc back in the 90s um so I'm not sure why they chose Boston, but 
but they did. And so because of that, I'm sure that they had to they had to have it be this Republican villain and the business villain rather than, you know, reflecting kind of the reality of the situation there, though they did accurately reflect two things I noticed. One, that almost everything is illegal in Massachusetts. Yeah. And two, that the train that when he picks up his daughter, he goes and looks at the reader board uh, on when her train's supposed to arrive. And it says TBD, but it had already, it already arrived. So that just goes to show you how fucked up the, the government uh, run institutions Anthrax. are. They don't even know like when their own train is intended to arrive, even though it already has arrived. Um, I thought that was a cute kind of little thing to notice. Um, there was one other thing that that's sort of related to Massachusetts in general. And I wondered if this had any relevance or symbolism but it was fairly prominently placed in Craven's kitchen and it was a bust of JFK. Did you guys notice this? And if so, do you think that it is meaningful in, in any way other than just setting the scene? It's beyond that. It's because Craven is supposed to be Catholic and specifically Irish Catholic and the Irish Catholics in Boston, you know, heavily revere uh, JFK. Okay. So it Makes is sense. a scenery setting or, or, building a, some depth to the character. Well, and you notice he's also wearing a cross throughout most of the movie. Right. Now, is Mel Gibson, he's a fairly conservative, fairly religious guy. Um, our, uh, our our previous guest, Mike C, said he's um, he's our guy. I, I don't know exactly <laughs> what that means. But uh, he has, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's a bit... Uh, he goes off and rants about the Jews. He's our okay. guy. He's got opinions. Uh, and, <laughs> and he got the DWI uh, and he was ranting drunk. Uh, about that. And then he was uh, persona non grata for about 10 years in Hollywood as a result of that. And then um, I want to say this was his, one of his first roles coming back from that. Yeah. So it uh, it happened in 2004 where he had that rant to the cop. And yeah, he was out of movies for like six years. And this was his first foray back. And he did a few things, including Expendables 3. But then, you know, within a few years after this movie came out, he had a big blow up that got recorded by his uh, second wife uh, that, you know, he was he was just going off on her about it basically, you know, as far as we could tell is like, you know, <laughs> I, I, mar I married you to uh, I married you for the sex. I didn't marry you because I actually like you. So you better just get to that and, you know, be classy while you do it, because if I see you with the with the boobs hanging out, I, you know, like, I hope you get raped and things like that. It's just like he was being an obvious <laughs> he, was, he was just being somewhat grotesque. But at the same time, as far as I could tell, she was clearly like trying to bait him into saying something like this because she had a prenuptial agreement and okay. was hoping to, you know, break it by showing abuse. This sounds vaguely familiar to the situation with Donald Sterling. You remember that? Mm -hmm. when yeah. He got recorded by his mail order bride or whatever. And then, uh, you know, he said some unsavory things, but he was talking about her carousing out with uh, people and, and he didn't like that. NBA stars. Same basic thing with... Um, Mel Gibson, at least it, that's the way he would probably portray it. But, you know, that being said, I mean, you know, they still had a kid together and had been married for a couple of years. And, you know, so it's the guy. I mean, the guy's been an alcoholic for like, you know, well, pretty much his entire adult life. And that being said, it's kind of weird because, yeah, he I mean, he does come from like a set of a contest family. His father moved to Australia because they were set of a contest and wanted to go to like a traditional Latin mass church and that's how he was originally you know getting uh, road warrior stuff down in australia all right now now i know how this uh, ties us back to our continuation of movies from Aust australian bats to yeah. contagion to smallpox blankets back to adelaide because that's right. where 
guest Shaheen is from. Okay, now we've completed the circuit. All right, so continue on. Sorry for the interruption. No, it's fine. So, um, yeah, and I mean, for a for a long time in the late '80s and '90s, he'd been married to one woman um, for you know 25 years, and they had like seven or eight kids. It was a ridiculous number of kids, and they lived out in this like weird. They lived out in the middle of Wyoming. They were not a part of the Hollywood elite. And even back in the 90s, he would always say things like, like back in the 90s, it was still like kind of acceptable to say this. But he did always say things like, no, he had an interview with Playboy magazine or something like that, where he says like, no, I hate the gays. Like they're 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 sick. It's gross. Disgusting. Why? I can't believe anybody would do that. I mean, you know, do I look like a gay guy to you? I can't believe this. Like I, I, I could never be more masculine, stuff like that. And he was well known in the 80s for, I mean, not just being like occasionally alcoholic, but, you know, like kind of being just I would say sophomoric around like women. So like he got a reputation when he would work with women that he was always just being gross around them. Like not just, you know, where he was trying to hit on them, but like almost like 12 year old boy where he'd go up and like fart on them and things like that. And, you know, but at the same time, he's like the biggest, hottest uh, Hollywood actor. He's, he's the highest paid male actor wins sexiest man of the year, like three or four times. It's ridiculous. So it's like, apparently, you know, women don't particularly mind being abused by a man as long as he's hot enough. I don't know. I've got a a meme for that. (laughs) Well, it's funny to to throw into that too. You know, uh, the sexiest man of the century, according to Time Magazine, is a guy who said not, who was interviewed in Playboy, not once, but twice, saying it was okay to hit a woman. And then when called out about it by Barbara Walters on the 60 Minutes edition, he completely owned up to it. And said, yeah, I haven't changed my mind in the last 20 years. I absolutely believe it's okay to hit a woman. Like sometimes it's necessary. And it's Sean Connery. Exactly. Right. Like the sexiest man of the century is an unabashed, uh, you know, domestic abuser does not give a shit. So apparently, if you if you uh, are really good looking and like hitting women, you got a really good shot to uh, be on Times Magazine's sexiest You'll man of the year. Fine. <laughs> well, I got to say, Gibson, uh, he, despite being uh, an alcoholic, he is he has a screen presence. I mean, you are right in your open when you're like, he knows one story and he retells it. So he's getting really good <laughs> at doing it because um, he does pretty much do the the aggrieved you know, revenge seeking uh, guy who does the wisecracks, but he's also a bit of an accomplished director. He did passion of the Christ, which we did with an Christian last year. He did Braveheart starred and directed. He also did uh, hacksaw Ridge directed. And I think hacksaw Ridge was, um, was that um, after this? I want to say, mm-hmm. okay. That was only a couple of years ago. Yeah. Okay, also so apocalypto, apocalypto highly right. underrated. Right. Yeah. And that, that's one that, that's probably worth doing as well. But I, I want to say hacksaw Ridge was the, the one that kind of got him back into the graces of Hollywood, like accepting him or people being willing to work with him. Uh, and you talk about the sophomoric attitude. Uh, I was reading that on the set of the movies that he directs, he will go up to the actors and have them like do a line or whatever, and then he'll fart on them or or something just to like break the ice, ease the tension, like kind of mix it up a little bit. I mean, yeah, it's a little bit ridiculous, but he does get results. His movies are well-directed. Yeah. Well, and what's funny about it is, you know, despite all of his personal foibles, aside from just being occasionally a raging alcoholic, sometimes just a moderate alcoholic with, you know, possibly, you know, overtly misogynistic or sexist, who cares? Like it's all, I mean, you could throw anything at him and it's going to stick because he's done that. There are people in Hollywood who just refuse to abandon him. And it's not just like other right-wing people. Um, I know Robert Downey Jr. and Sean Penn and a couple of other people just refuse to condemn him because he apparently has been uh, very useful in their lives for helping them correct their own alcoholism, drug abuse, drug addiction, 
And um, what's his, what's her name? Jodie Foster refuses to condemn him. She's as left wing as it gets, but she says Mel is like a great guy personally, just always there for everybody who needs him. So it's hard to tell because like you, you, you see his personal behavior and it's like, okay, guy, dude, like calm down with the talking about Jewish people. Talk, you know, quit, quit the talking about you hope a girl gets raped. But at the same time, like people are just like, despite all that, Mel's a great guy. And I, I think I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Mel. Like, okay, yeah, that's interesting. That, that's like a strong person who has such other great qualities that it more than makes up for these missteps. Now, I don't know about in the wokester age, which we live in now, like where the minorest of things will get you canceled, shut down, lose your job, all that stuff. But um, it does seem to be with him, you know, he is he's such a his own person that he almost stands as a, a beacon of sorts, you know, like he's he's so strong and independent as, as his personality. And he's doing a lot for other people. So I think it, it almost, it gets some people to defend him very strongly when he is kind of approached with some of his actions. Yeah. So I, it's, it's I'm, I, don't, I obviously don't know the guy. I just have to judge based on how people react to him. And uh, apparently, despite the things that he says and has done, uh, he's well loved by a lot of individuals enough that, um, okay, I'd, help, I'd almost have to look and say, okay, like there's obviously something wrong with him, but there's obviously also something right. Yeah. All right. Now we've been kind of talking about the actor, the man for a while here. Let's let's get over to the movie a little bit. Um, one of the things I liked about his approach in the movie as the character Craven was when the shooting of his daughter happens, which, by the way, that's horrific. Like just even considering that I've got two daughters, I, I too would be out for revenge. And uh, I, I noticed when um, she did get shot, he had because he was so concerned about her trying to get her to the hospital uh, for her coughing up blood and vomiting that he didn't grab his service weapon. So when she got shot, he was like trying to draw and there was nothing there. Uh, so that just kind of stood out to me and, and like such a feeling of helplessness. I, I could only imagine what that would have been like. Um, but when the police all go to his house and like respond to the scene, they're milling about having coffee. Uh, it's like a couple of dozen people there and they're all talking to him like, Hey, this is an officer involved thing. So, you know, we're going to get this guy. We're going to really go after him. We're going to really, you know, you know what kind of justice we're going to meet out on these people. We're actually going to try. Yeah. We're actually going to try this time. And his response was perfect. Like, shouldn't we do that for everyone? Yeah, exactly. You know, cause it does seem look, I I've never been involved with police all that much. So I don't know if this is a thing, but it seems to be brought up enough in, in media, TV, movies, et cetera where it, there is this kind of one of your own close the ranks blue line thing where they do go above and beyond when it is more personal to them when you're right. And he's right in, in the movie. It's like, well, that's how they should be treating every situation. Right. But they are humans and they are a gang and they have self-interest and you're going to get emotional when it's closer to home. Right. And there's no competition. So it's there's not no like competition. Yeah. So you don't have to do a good job the rest of the time. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the other thing that I think was um, funny about it is, of course, that ended up not being true at all. Like, despite their uh, statements of, you know, officer involved, they we're going to take this one seriously. Um, he eventually is thrown under the bus himself when the police chief at the end is threatened with some litigation or uh, some sort of a fake suit or even threatened for his life. We don't know exactly what the threat was. We just know that it was effective because he eventually says, like, Yo, I can't fight for you. I have kids of my own. And he's thrown under the bus to die. Oh, okay. Now, that was the guy who says, 
Tommy, I've got kids, Tommy. Yeah. That, that wasn't the captain though. That was like his, his, uh, squad commander or whatever. Cause the, the, the chief or whatever, who he went to, um, right after the shooting into the office, uh, he was talking to him. It's like, Oh, anything you need, you know, you come over my wife, whatever, we'll help you. Uh, and he put that other dude in charge of the investigation. Yeah. Right. But it was, it was still, and I don't know the actor's name. I don't even remember the character's name because he's just not that important, but the, we'll call him the shift supervisor, I guess, or not the shift supervisor, but the, you know, whoever the, man, the, the manager, Aaron, yeah. speak to the manager. Um, he was the one that said at the beginning, when he's sitting down on the couch with um, Thomas Craven, you know, you know how we get with things like this, you know, officer involved. And at the end, he was the one who also said, you know, I got kids. So, you know, and then he, he like shake, he like hides his face as he's leaving. Cause he's so ashamed knowing that he's giving this guy up for death um, because he's unwilling to uh, sacrifice um, anything for, for the so-called principle he's saying he lives by. Right now that, that was another thing that was a little bit confusing to me in this film. It did seem a little bit convoluted um, at that moment when he's at Mel Gibson's place and, and Mel just like escaped from the, no, no, that's where he gets captured and gets Before. taken. Yeah. But, this guy is giving him up to the private security guys who work for this corporation. Yeah. Correct. And they've got something on him. They threaten his kids. And that's, it's like Mel Gibson, Thomas Craven figures out or intuits that he is being um, betrayed here because right. it initially doesn't start out that way. And then Mel Gibson gives this little speech about, you know, you got to live by a couple of principles. The rules are simple. You never give in to the bad guys and all this stuff. And, and, and it's like in that moment, he figured out that his buddy was turning him in. Uh-huh, uh-huh. and that he yeah. was that he was bought and paid for basically you know he's, he's saying like his pension doesn't go very far doesn't pay enough so you got to take money from the bad guys here and there and do do stuff for him right and and the whole um lead up to that was exactly right though i mean talking about how uh even if you win the case they'll just do another one against you and they'll just bleed you dry until you can't defend yourself any further through the legal means yeah and that totally makes sense you know that they're going to have vast more resources available to themselves to just wear you down. And and you see this critique from the left all the time about corporations and going up against them is that, well, they've got deep pockets so they can outlast you when it comes to things like this. And uh, I'll liken this to like potential economic collapse. You know, Peter Schiff's been talking about gold for a long time and, and the, the crack up boom that Mises talks about uh, and, and uh, pr- potential manipulation in gold and silver prices. Uh, and I've heard the comment that, they can afford to be wrong longer than you can. Yeah, I've heard that too. Um, I uh, it's hard to know exactly where to draw that line, but I know, for instance, within a, I suspect within a private property society, you'd be looking at a system where you know whatever community you're a part of that has a, a judge, you know, or a legal code that it's adhered to with a series of courts and judges. At some point, they just say like, "No, you had your shot. Screw off." Um, but it would have to be dependent on uh, what their reputation will bear. So right now, the court system does not have a particularly good reputation because, as you say, uh, justice can be bought. And yet at the same time, it's extremely harsh for those who cannot afford it. If you can't afford a good lawyer, you're screwed. You're going to go to jail. You're going to go to jail for longer than you should. You're going to go to jail for things that they just make up. And it's actually easier and cheaper to go to jail than it is to fight. At the same time, if you have the money, you're effectively immune from crime, or you can be immune to quite a bit of crime. Um, not to, you know, throw this up as a perfect example, but you know, R. Kelly isn't even that rich, and he can literally get away with, um, you know, sex crimes involving a minor. You know, and yeah, they kind of brought him before court, but he's still not really going to jail. Like it's been 
it's repeated multiple times, and it's been more than a decade, even more than 15 years since this came out, and nothing happened. That's it. You know, the man's a serial urinator. It's true. It's true. I mean, you know, I pee all the time. I never get paid for it. <laughs> I always see, yeah, manage to miss the the teenagers though when I pee. It's weird. Uh, you you sure you're aiming right? I have. Well, I don't know. Sometimes I drink too much. All right. <laughs> this is getting weird. This is getting a little weird. Uh, can we talk a little yeah. bit about the tenuous position that the daughter is in, in that she's working for a corporation private nominally with a government contract? And the government has them uh, up to no good, right? It's black book, confidential uh, shit where they are making what is potential false flag um, plans and, and munitions to be at the ready to paint the, uh, the guilty, you know, get, paint a target on uh, the alleged guilty. And this, uh, this is reminiscent of um, what's it called? Operation Paperclip, where they had plans drawn up in the 60s. Uh, Northwoods buildings. Yeah. Oh, Northwoods. Okay, paperclips. Uh, another one. Uh, Look at scientists in World War II. Right, right, right. Yeah, and there's, you there's gotta a get bunch- all your CIA operations straight, Daniel. You know, I got to pay more attention to this stuff. Oh, by the way, Alex Jones just got arrested for a DWI. Uh, speaking of that, was he was he yelling about the Jews? Uh, he's never probably, gotten into the Jew thing too much. He's always talking about aliens and you know, yeah, the lizard lizard the people. Bilderberg, yeah, the Bilderberg's going to come after him. Yeah, but I guess he blew under the limit, but they arrested him anyway. So oh, better know. safe than sorry. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he's, he's got damn Bilderbergers always coming after me. <laughs> oh, what the fuck was I talking about? Um, okay, so so we've got this uh this daughter in this situation where she is trying to blow the whistle. She writes a letter to a senator, she tries to turn him in like several different ways. She never talks to her dad about it, which I find interesting because he's a cop and she knows him to be a good good dude. I don't know why she wouldn't confide in him, though the boyfriend says that he um was kind of pissed at at Craven because he wasn't around or, or never bothered to visit his daughter. But it seems as if she was in a position to where if she had tried all these other avenues and had been shut down and then was going to go with these eco-terrorist types. And I use that word kind of the word terrorist is thrown around a bit. Um, but those who uh, would be of the green uh, watermelon variety, like green on the outside, red on the inside. Explosion like, enthusiasts is the term. Explosion enthusiasts who, who want to blow things up but can't do it terribly well. Like uh, you saw the, the video of these women throwing a Molotov cocktail in uh, Mexico and threw it on themselves. They even used that same phrase um, in the movie, uh, want to blow things up, but aren't very good at it. Yeah. But, but that she's drawn to, to them instead of her dad is kind of, kind of bizarre. Right. Like, and, and, and to yeah. think that um, she's going to go to the center who's obviously, obviously in on it. Like if, if, if you know, the government's up to no good. Well, but that's a lot of naivete, right? I mean, back in the Russia, back during the purge and all everybody's friends and neighbors were getting taken away to the gulags. They'd still talk to each other and like, Oh, if only uncle Joe knew about this, then, you know, he could do something to stop it. It, it, It's that cognitive dissonance where you believe the one guy, your guy is a good guy. And it's just the system around him or the people around him that are corrupt and bad and whatnot. I've I've got my yellow, black and yellow uh, tinted glasses. I think where, you know, I look at all of these as criminals and remember the negotiator. His favorite president of all time is Obama, who is who could do no wrong. He's the greatest man who ever lived, and it was just those darn Republicans who wouldn't work with him to do all the great things that he wanted to do. This is this is the mindset of most statists. I mean, there are dissolution statists too, of course. Well, but I, I think the other thing would be she's probably looking at her father and thinking, you know, what's he going to do? You know, because he's a cop, he handles homicides. He doesn't handle grand conspiracy theories involving the government, over which there is no effective policing. Um, but beyond that, I mean, what's her what's her father going to do? Just say, well, just 
just walk away. Like, why would you be involved in this? Like, you know, it's not going to involve you. It can't involve you. Like, focus on yourself and focus on your own. That's certainly the advice I'd give to my own daughter. I mean, I understand. I believe in the in concepts of, of justice and certainly not murdering people with uh, false flag operations using jihadi dirty bombs. But, you know, if my own daughter was involved in this, I'd just say, then then quit and get out. Like, I understand that this is bad, but guess what? I love you more than I love those potentially thousand people who are going to die. You know? And I'm not really ashamed to say something like this. Like, okay, yeah. Do I love my daughter more than I love a thousand people I've never met and heard of? Absolutely. Everybody does. Not an egalitarian there, professional asshole. <laughs> no, no. I actually, I hate poor people. I wish they would pay more more in taxes, even than rich people. It'd be, be great. You know, I want them to suffer. The kind hand of the overseer is the only thing that keeps them working. All right. All right. We're getting a little. Is he trolling us right now? <laughs> Whatever, you dirty capitalist. You're the one who's about to like employ some poor slave. <laughs> be awesome. All right. So let, let, let me ask this. This seemed to be a little bit of a, a missing links in the story. One was they apparently went in to take uh, video evidence of the, th- these dirty bombs being manufactured. So they snuck in through the cooling tunnels and then they got vented with irradiated. Uh, Gassing yeah. steam, uh, but apparently she didn't actually go into these tunnels. So how did her clothing get irradiated? The, the milk uh, poison, right? Yeah, they they gave the her thallium, thallium um, in her thall- milk. Well, well yeah, in, in her, her creamer. Her, yeah, why would it be all over her her boots and her clothing? Uh, it just it, it wasn't all over her boots and her clothing. It was over in her hair. So her body had become irradiated by the time she had had enough thallium. And thallium is. It usually doesn't appear in its natural state. Like it doesn't appear as an, as a fine ore in um, nature, like iron might. But um, you have to refine it. But once you do, it's a metal that is um, membrane permeable, meaning that you don't actually have to ingest it. You can just get it on your skin, and it's highly, highly toxic. And uh, certain forms of it will cause heart attacks. So a lot of conspiracy theorists will talk about thallium seventy four heart attacks or something like that. You just have to touch somebody with the stuff, and you know, a couple of days later, they're going to die of a heart attack. But okay. in this case, they, she died due to radiation poisoning, so it must have been a different form so of thallium. Is that what Hillary Clinton uses? Okay, I don't know. Yeah, um, I don't... Let's talk about... There's a scene, I don't know, about midway through the movie where the owner of the research R&D, uh, the main villain guy, I don't know his name, he has a meeting with his government handler by a bridge, like in a park. And the handler is upset with him for having private security. And he's also upset for having killed these three explosion enthusiasts, because in his words, you know, dead people have friends, lovers, parents, children. And he says, you know, there's a billion loose ends by killing these people. You create all these problems. And of course, this is, this is a lot of times my libertarian argument against aggression and using violence to solve your problems because people get upset when they get attacked and their friends get killed and yeah, it causes problems. People want to see justice. And so he's talking about, he's bemoaning all these people that he's going to have to appease or sweep the story under the rug or all this work he has to do because you cause the problem of killing these people. And it's kind of hypocritical coming from this government, you know, deep stater guy who also probably, you know, is organizing these dirty bomb attacks or whatever else in his other job. But he makes a good point. I don't know if he realizes it, but it's basically the insurgent math of uh, Afghanistan and Iraq and anywhere, you know, empires go where you can't kill your enemies fast enough. They'll just keep multiplying because you piss people off when you murder their friends. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And it's um, it's one that I think they're making inadvertently. 
like he probably sees that as yes that that makes this uh, whole operation prone to exposure and getting more attention than they would prefer so it's more of an inconvenience rather right. than we're like, do my job son yeah. of a bitch. Yeah. i'm a government bureaucrat i don't have to do any work yeah this, this might expose our wrongdoing right and so mm-hmm. that's that's more of his um problem with it as opposed more more just like consequentialist right he's not making a moral argument you're right no no not at all yeah so where, where i think you are making more of a moral argument and you know with with some pragmatic like, accident yeah right uh, but yeah, I, I don't think he had any problem with, with those people dying. It was just the manner in which they died where it, it looked obviously like it was a little bit, not too an accident, bad. right? Yeah. yeah. That they would have drowned or, or whatever. Cause yeah, he was, he was in on this whole, uh, operation of, of having the sturdy bomb to frame, uh, another group or country, uh, for the, um, you know, the, the, the false flag that you need to gin start up the war, to start the war. Yeah. you know, you look at, um, the Lusitania and, and, uh, the Remember the and mm-hmm. uh, the Gulf of Tonkin and the babies and incubators. Um, you know, all these things were manufactured to a point. Uh, there never were babies and incubators. There never was uh, weapons of mass destruction uh, in Iraq. Uh, Assad didn't gas his people. Um, in, in, unless you guys tell me I'm wrong on this stuff, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure all of these things were manufactured. Those have all come out. Yeah. Yeah. So um, and now if if Saddam did have any weapons of mass destruction, he bought them from from the U.S. So, you know, were, like yeah, uh, we, we gave them we yeah. gave him those weapons, you know, the tow missiles and uh, sarin gas. We gave them to him. Right. Yeah. And who was it? Paul Moody. He was on Chappelle's show and he's like playing the Negro Damas. He's like, <laughs> he's like, how do I know? We have the receipt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, this movie ends Watchmen style with this evidence being presented to the press where in Watchmen, I think it's a little more credible in that um, Rorschach sends his journal to this kind of crank newspaper and kind of runs with it. But in this movie, you've got these explosive tapes, you know, video evidence or confession or whatever being sent to this journalist. But then the movie ends before the news editor comes in and goes, yeah, this, this story's not going anywhere. We're going to kill this right here. Yeah, we're we're meant to believe that it's going to take off and it's going to have a happy ending, and all these people are going to go to jail and get caught, and when really it's just going to get buried, Epstein style. Well, there there is the retribution, which I think you're you were about to bring up, right, professional asshole. Yeah, well, Jedberg, Jedberg, you know, kills kills everybody involved. Yeah, my favorite character in this whole thing. We haven't talked about him yet. Yeah, no, it's Jedberg is a great character. He's the one who initially uh, says, you know, smoking's illegal in Massachusetts. And he responds, everything's illegal in Massachusetts. You know, and uh, I don't think I got that. I did too much Boston accent there, not of British. But um, yeah, that and eventually he, um, the conspirators that are that remain that were not killed by Craven are trying to figure out their cover-up story. And he helps them come up with this cover-up story and then executes uh, them, including a United States senator, and he knows that obviously he can't walk out of this alive. So he's he's facing down with this young cop who's supposed to be guarding the house, uh, but he gets the drop on the guy, and he realizes, you know, I'm I'm a I'm an aged man with no kids, nobody left to bury me. I don't really have a ton to live for myself. I just nor much time, right? Nor much time. He's, yeah, he's already ter- terminal with some sort of terminal. illness yeah. that doesn't seem to take away from his faculties, but does seem to put a, a fuse on his whatever. And um, he realizes, yeah, you got kids, you got a family. The guy says, yeah. He just says, okay. He he drops the gun and lets the cop kill him, which is relatively noble sacrifice given the circumstances. The fact that this guy Jedberg had helped, you know, 
however many conspiracy theories, however you know, had covered up however many conspiracies had killed enough people in order to uh, ensure that uh, United States national security is uh, ensured. Yeah. So his role was as a fixer, like sort of this black ops kind of guy who would work. The wolf. He's the wolf. Yeah. Outside of the bounds of of I guess accountable government. That's a bit of an oxymoron. Uh, but even the senator didn't know his role or or what who he reported to or or how he uh, interacted to make these things kind of go away. But he made a lot of things go away and a lot of people go away. Uh, or at least that's what it's alluded to. And when he's um, first brought into this, I'm not sure who the who this guy was. The guy with the glasses who was sitting in front of the SUV during the meeting. And the, uh, the handler was talking to the megalomaniac dude, but um, he's the one who first engages him. And Jedberg says it's, it, it's up to him on whether what he's going to do about what is brought to his attention on whether something actually needs his attention or not. And he's speaking very vague, uh, non-incriminating um, terms. And I, I kind of liked how they did that uh, in the film. And uh, he is a very uh, intriguing character, mysterious. And you can tell that he's dangerous. And I think that Craven even noticed this and he even thanks him at, at one point. He's like, hey, thanks for not killing me. Because even though Craven in this movie is, you know, this um, police detective and he's demonstrably a good, you know, self-defense guy, he can fight, he can shoot a gun, whatever, fairly well. He's not like Daniel Day-Lewis level at last <laughs> you know, but, but he, a few people it. are last. Yeah. Commando. <laughs> but he, he knows that this guy is a professional, like stone cold killer stone cold killer who who doesn't have any um there's nothing preventing him from doing it other than his own volition right like he could kill craven in a moment if he wanted to but he saw something in craven that he was earnest and really trying to solve something that potentially was um an injustice and i i feel like jedberg recognized that and so he wasn't purely evil he was an instrument of evil but he, he himself was not purely evil and that he does meet out that um, that justice at the end. Now, I didn't realize that he dropped the gun. I thought that he was saying to the to the responding um, guy who was security cop guy, yeah, security cop guy, like, "Hey, you have a family." As as in that, oh, okay, then I'm not going to kill you. You know, you can withdraw. I didn't realize that he lowered his weapon in in to be shot himself. I thought that that young cop <laughs> underhandedly like shot him. Uh, after being shown mercy. That's how I read that. And maybe I, I would need to watch that moment again. Uh, but I, I know Jedberg did know he was terminal and he had just done something that there was no um, sweeping under the rug. Like he just shot this senator. Um, and, and what did he say to him? You know, I'm a senator of the United States. And he says, by what? By what uh, standard? Right. Which, yeah, okay. You, you sworn an oath and you obviously didn't uh, leave, <laughs> live up to it. I, I think that's what he's alluding to there. Uh, but uh, I, I read that, that, that situation as Jedberg was going to spare that cop and allow him to withdraw. Not that he was going to let him shoot Jedberg and like be a bit of a hero. Uh, right. But he, Jedberg, I don't think had any illusions about what his end was going to be like, whether right. he was going to be summarily executed, like a, like a guy of his depth in the deep state operative role, like his existence can't come to light. You know, I mean, he's going to be taken care of one way or another. There's no, there's no trial. <laughs> he's not getting arrested. right. No, he's just going to disappear, and he'll be some faceless, fingerprintless body somewhere. Well, and what else is the cop supposed to do, having seen an armed man just kill, you know, three high-level government bureaucrats, including a senator? You know, it, I mean, it's not so much that, like, obviously Jetberg's, well, not even, not obviously, 
Jedberg is not a threat, but it's not immediately obvious. The cop's just like, okay, you know, I'm supposed to protect these guys. There's an armed guy walking out who drew a gun on me. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, what else? Is, what else is that guy supposed to do? He's not. I mean, he can't. He can't just let Jedberg walk out and then get arrested. Like, why didn't you? You know, he got the drop on you and let you live, and then he dropped his gun. You know, I, I suspect that Jedberg under like understood that's what he did and his, and his weapon he didn't just throw up his hands or something like that he like lowered the gun down to his side yeah. um so i i think i mean i guess it's technically open to interpretation but my interpretation is that jedberg knew that the cop was going to kill him and allowed that to happen okay i think I, I, I i interpreted it along the side daniel although i don't think that our two interpretations are that far apart from yeah, and, and I think since he knew that he, he wasn't walking away from that situation and he was going to die soon enough anyway, that, yeah, he was kind of doing the suicide by cop thing at the end. Yeah. Yeah, and he was trying to do a redemption thing. I mean, for all the shitty things he'd probably done in his career, maybe do one good thing. I mean, I, it's hard to say that he hasn't been in that similar situation for like decades in whatever job he's had. I mean, you got to be dealing with corrupt people day in, day out, shady people. You're cleaning up murders and rapes and all kinds of horrific stuff. So yeah. it's weird that he finally gets a conscience now, but I mean, this is the movie. So what do you think? Well, he had, he had kind of uh, faced his own mortality, right? Like he knew that it was the end and, and now he was like uh, interacting with Craven, who was perhaps showing him some humanity a little bit, someone who's lost the last um, of his family. And, and then Jedberg never had a family. And so maybe that had a role in his in his turn a little bit. He saw some. Yeah, virtue. I mean, there, he does give that one speech about finding uh, another honest man or an honest man, right? When Diogenes was walking about Greece with a lamp, looking for an honest man. Yeah, that's better. That's good. There it is. There's the guy. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get into any final notes if you guys have got them before we do the final summary review and scoring. Uh, if anyone's got smoke them, if you got them. Um, I did have a question actually. Um, how did Craven get irradiated? They sort of just kind of paint the brush that, oh yeah, he got irradiated somehow. They also really thallium. In his water? In I, I wonder. In his milk. But he knew it was in his milk. Why did he intentionally drink it? Or just well, like afterwards he the, realized it? He realized it afterwards when he took the, uh, when he realized that his daughter had been irradiated and poisoned with thallium, um, that he he did it to his own fridge to see and he realized, oh, I've already been poisoned. I already drank you know, some small portion of this milk in my coffee, but it does not take a lot of thallium to kill you. And it is fat soluble, which is extremely unusual for a metal. Okay. So that was his fridge, not his daughter's fridge that he was using the, uh, what is it called? A, um, the uh, radio uh, dosimeter. Yeah. Okay. All right. I, I thought it was his daughter's fridge. Thing. Yeah. The Ghostbusters thing. I thought it was his daughter's <laughs> fridge. He was, he was discovering how his daughter had been poisoned, but, but what you're saying is no, it was actually his own fridge. And that he was realizing that he was also had, been poisoned okay yes yeah all right see this is where it's a little bit fuzzy i think in the movie i'll like, admit that uh, that they they let the details of the murder mystery sink a bit to the re- way they discover and walk through the father-daughter dynamic throughout the movie like that's clearly the father-daughter dynamic is more important to the movie than is the mystery surrounding the conspiracy yeah i think this movie plays better to the heart than to the mind i yeah. agree with that Okay. Well, since I have no heart, that makes it a little difficult for me. But well, too much of libertarian autists. Yes, it comes yeah. from. <laughs> I'm a professional asshole for a reason. I do not have a heart. Yeah. Well, well played, sir. Well, uh, Robert, why don't we have you lead off with uh, your final summary and scoring, please? Okay. Well, I have a problem reviewing this film because this is the second time I've seen it, and it was spoiled. So I think it was an interesting discussion. There are all kinds of libertarian themes, all kinds of problems with government. 
that this movie highlights, although oftentimes in movies like this, it's presented as, well, yeah, this one guy is dirty, not the system at all, you know, as a whole, not like the whole entire system is morally bankrupt and corrupt from the get go. Not that, you know, just this one guy is evil or whatever, but it's still, it's, it's a, it's a good revenge story. I always appreciate a good revenge story. And I think in, if I was in his situation, yeah, I'd be like Dan said, I'd be doing the same thing. And I appreciated that he was going outside the department that he was like, you know, oh, you're, you're, you're investigating it. Good. But I'm going to be go doing my own thing over here. And I don't even necessarily going to talk to you guys about it. I'm just going to keep my own counsel and I'll follow along with your dumb asses as you go off on the wrong trail while I'm actually doing the right police work. Um, I have a little bit of a quibble. This is not a big deal. But at one point, Mel Gibson is betrayed by his policeman gang member and the two guys capture him and they like tie him up like Scooby-Doo style or like James Bond style in the depths of the biz, the base, the, the complex. And like, he has to play dead. And then like these scientists come in and he like fights his way out. And then he just, he's driving out of the complex. Like he, he borrows the clothes of one of the scientists. And then we're just to believe that he got through the checkpoint just with the clothes of the scientist as if, I don't know, man, that just, just bugged me when he was like, just, just drove out. He just drove out past security checkpoint. They had an yeah. earlier scene in the movie where he was trying to get in and he had to show him his ID and all this stuff. And there's a 24 hour guard. So anyway, yeah, that bothered well, me too. Cause he just showed up back at his house. Yeah. He's just back at his house. That was, that's really annoying me. I know it's not a big deal, but it just stuck in my craw. Like, come on, move. Well, and, and the idea that he was still, uh, a very good uh, marksman with a pistol while being in the condition he was in at the end of the movie where he's able to take out two assassins, oh, yeah. uh, you know, relatively easily. That I think was like, it should have been a little bit of a bloodier fight where he's, you know, having to like hide behind something and take a few shots because, you know, he's, he's just not really seeing things the way he should anymore. But instead, you know, he walks right up to this um, arch evil bad guy's house, Bennett. And the first thing he does is the uh, bodyguard, you know, puts up his hand and he immediately shoots through the hand, through the guy's eye. One shot, that's it. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know. This guy's clearly, he's puked he's like four or five times in the last couple hours um, just because his, his body is shedding so many cells from radiation poisoning. I don't know. I don't know about this. Yeah, I mean, this doesn't reach up my, I mean, the, the, the even more ridiculous shot in this very movie is where he's standing on that roadside and he just got ton talking to that girl mm-hmm. and he gets out and she gets hit by the car and the car peels around and it's facing him and he it's driving straight at him. And yeah, he shoots the windshield. Give him that. No problem. Shoot the windshield. He gets a shot, hits the driver. No problem. The problem I have is when he shoots the front right tire somehow through the engine or the, the, the front molding causing the car to immediately turn and fly off a Dukes of Hazard style into the river. Uh, that was that was pretty bad. I could see him hitting the driver, but the tire, like, an, it doesn't matter if it's a 9 miller or a 45. I think I'd have to go look at the gun again. I think it was a SIG 226, which is probably going to be a 9 millimeter, possibly 40 cal. But one of those bullets to a tire is going to deflate it, but not so quickly that it explodes and shreds, losing your ability to maintain control of the car. Yeah. But still, I mean, in terms of movie impossible shots, these probably aren't even cracking the top 
100, but still, they take away the realism of the film. Plenty more make- steroid 80 movies for that. Mm-hmm. I had to make it exciting, I guess. But yeah, I don't, I don't think that that amazing shot at the last possible moment to make the car veer is is bizarre. And the windshield one, I, we actually talked about this in my firearms training, that because of the angle of a windshield, you can't shoot like as if you're shooting the driver body of mass style. You actually have to shoot lower mm. because of the angle of the, of the windshield. Anyway, the more you know. All right, so let's let's get your score. Okay, so hard for me to score. I, I if I was listening to this right now, I'd trust Daniel. The asshole scores more than mine. Uh, but I would say that it's. I would give it a positive review. I still enjoyed it, even though you know I, I already knew the story. I, I enjoyed the performances of Gibson. I enjoyed just a good, well-told revenge story. And this was pretty much a man versus the machine you know, revenge story, one man, no matter what's going to happen, he's going to take it on and do it, even if it costs him his life. Um, and I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that single-minded um, determination. Um, it's not always to be celebrated, depending on what you're doing. But in this situation, I I, I can see myself doing the same thing. And uh, for that, I, I, I can't give it anything, but at least like a 6.5, maybe even a seven. It's, it, yeah, yeah, it's it's like a seven. It's 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 not great, but it's it's pretty 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 damn good. All right, well well done, sir. You know I'm gonna actually give it a seven as well, even though I I, I feel like maybe I liked it better than you. But there were all these little nitpicky holes that I had problems with, like following what was going on. It wasn't clear what Jedberg's role was, um, and and who certain players were and why they were doing what they're doing. I didn't really understand a lot of the motivations. But Gibson does fine work. Uh, the revenge aspect is really good. The making the um, megalomaniac businessman the villain of the film kind of bothered me as well but i can see why they would do that i mean that's kind of like the the normie take on things you know corporations are bad and and government is there to keep them in check for the people right (laughs) at least in theory uh but it was still interesting and and fun to watch and i liked the resolve that he had uh he had said that you know once he had lost um his last family member that he wasn't sure he could go on and he was like having hallucinations and seeing his or hearing his daughter and seeing his daughter and he had to push on. And I think that was what was the edge of darkness. Right. And then he went even beyond that once he was poisoned and he knew, he knew it, he realized it. He, he was already talking about how he had nothing left to lose. And, and that even just ups the ante even more knowing that he's going to die uh, any time now. So yeah, it just pushed him on to go as far as he could to, I guess, seek justice and, and revenge for what they had done. Um, but I'm going to also give it a seven. Um, it's, a, it's a recommended film, but, but like professional asshole was saying early on, uh, you can almost watch any Mel Gibson movie and, and kind of get the same uh, overall gist of, of what is to happen. Uh, so, um, but also a very good discussion and uh, uh, I'm glad that you recommended this one. Well, my opinion is that it, it obviously suffers from certain weaknesses. One of the great weaknesses in my opinion is that it has to overplay the evilness of the villains in order to make them, uh, I guess, scalable to the so-called goodness uh, or the, the goodness and the rage of uh, Thomas Craven. So like when Craven first goes to visit the, the big bad guy, Bennett um, at the very end, after, after talking about some very, you know, platonic and, and factual information regarding the company, um, you know, he says something like as a, uh, as a parent, I think I can empathize with what you're going through, but I probably can't imagine its full depths. And then he, he goes on to continue to tell him more about the company. And he ends with, do you mind if I, he almost immediately cuts into, 
uh, he's talking about maintaining a nuclear payload for the United States. And he says, and we maintain this nuclear payload. By the way, can I ask you a personal question? How does it feel? Right? Like, like I, I understand that they're trying to portray the guy as a sociopath, but even the most ardent sociopath would have learned, especially to arise to a position that that guy had risen to, would have learned to mask their lack of feeling a little better than that. Like he was just so obviously evil and sociopathic that it was not believable as a character. He was just a, he was, it was almost like he was an entity as opposed to an actual person. And that was, that was a major weakness. They did this a couple times where they just have uh, the bad guys be so bad and not very, not very realistic. Um, like they've got the environmentalist guy who's organizing things for uh, Nightflower is like this weenie guy who gets beaten up in a second living on a, on a, living in a mansion while he's has um, these poor hippies who, you know, make arts and crafts for a living doing all his dirty. It's, it's too obvious. It's too blatant. And that's a weakness that the movie has is that the characterizations are um, exaggerations as opposed to truly persons. But that being said, you know, going back to South Park all the way back in like 2002, you know, you say what you want about Mel Gibson, but the man understands story structure. And he always comes out with solid movies. He always acts in solid movies. His movies are always uh, good performers. They're not the best thing ever, but they are, they're damn good. And uh, this has a lot of good libertarian fodder in it. And it's got the good father daughter dynamic. So for that reason, I'm going to go a bit above you guys. I'm not going to give it an eight, but I will give it a 7.5. All right. Well, we're all right around there. Yeah, pretty solid score. Three guys agreeing with each other. A bunch of assholes <laughs> spewing our <laughs> our hate speech across the interwebs <laughs> and, and uh, our patriarchal dominance, I suppose. Well, this this was a lot of fun, uh, professional asshole, and uh, we'd love to have you back again. I, I know in the pre-show content available for our Patreon supporters, lastnight.com slash Patreon, that you were a little bit miffed that uh, our man Shaheen from Adelaide, Australia, gets uh, all the DC work around here. Oh, um, my God. Shaheen, if you're listening, you do great work, and I love you, man. But screw you, bro. Seriously, I, uh, especially with the Dark Knight stuff, I love the Dark Knight trilogy, and you took it from me. <laughs> well, it it was it was a, a good series of episodes uh, with Shaheen on on the Dark Knight trilogy. I think we did just well, we did three episodes, but um, one of the movies was broken up into two, and then we sort of glossed over one of the movies while talking about the the last one. I want to say something like that. We we sort of like hamfisted our way through it, which is what we do here on the show and uh, what we will do next week with uh with another returning guest john reed will be coming back to talk about and the band played on which i want to say is like from the 80s or 90s it's uh it's on that amazon AIDS thing? it is the aids thing. So we're gonna talk about the aids thing uh mm. next week um he says that uh he was a, a film student and uh, a bit of an art critic and so he's got some stuff to talk about on this one so I think we're going to be put to the test, Robert, not an AIDS test, but just the test on our um, film review critiquing chops. Mm, oh, shit. Like a real person that knows how to do this is going to come in here and make us look bad. Great. <laughs> like, we so, need any, like we need any help with that. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, I'm wondering how well uh, the band played on as aged, right? As the AIDS virus is more well known and less and, and less. And now threat. it's funny. I mean, it's just downright funny these days. Yeah, it's good comedic fodder exactly yeah so if so if we aren't canceled or uh, contracting uh, other viruses and other strains of things uh, or we run out of toilet paper um, we'll be back next week until our demands are met uh, so uh, you guys can uh, find the show notes and more for this one with a professional asshole talking about the edge of darkness starring mel gibson uh, episode 115 of this very here show last slash 115 also find it on the launchpad media where they're always launching new ideas in your direction and we will be back with uh and the band played on next week 
Uh, and and uh, Professional Hustle, if you can stick around for a little bit longer, we do Kathleen Turner Overdrive for the Patreons. Um, I know it's already late, but uh, maybe uh, you stick around for a little bit. I live on coffee anyways. It's fine. All right. Perfect. Well, hey, thank you, audience. Thank you for supporting us. Thank you for your comments, reviews, subscribes, all those things. Check out Trubster.com to buy some merchandise from Robert. Uh, we'll put some other links on the show notes page and all that. And we will see you next week. Good night from last night, everyone. All right, we'll continue the Actual Anarchy podcast for just another moment here. Uh, this is episode 172 of the Actual Anarchy podcast. It's the show within the show. Um, I know it's a bad, dumb idea. We've been doing it for two years now, and I uh, can't quit now. Uh, once once I start doing a dumb thing, i got to just continue to do the dumb thing. But uh, I, I like to save like a, a maybe a pointed question for this portion. And I wanted to direct this to you, professional asshole. The portrayal of the senator seemed pretty spot on. To me in this film, um, I, I've had very limited uh, exposure to those who work in government. Um, they put on a good face for the cameras, but behind the scenes, they tend to be dicks. And we kind of see that a little bit in this. And I'm just wondering if you have um, any commentary around that, any experience. Um, was, was your take that this was uh, somewhat accurate as far as how he um, was kind of a bit of an asshole himself? <laughs> Mr. Professional <laughs> Asshole. Well, it's funny because you asked me that. I don't. I don't know if you guys remember, but I actually used to work in, uh, in for a think tank for five years, uh, specifically on climate issues, which was even funnier. Um, it's about half and half, um, as far as I can tell, with regard to uh, people who work on the Hill, senators, congressmen. I've met um, met two. I've met four senators and you know half dozen, maybe a dozen congressmen in my life, um, with enough knowledge to actually be able to state something meaningful about them. I know a dozen other people who worked on the Hill. And um, it's about half and half. Like half of them clearly, they, they believe their own BS. They they absolutely think that they're trying to solve the world's problems. They're believers. And they're, they're trying hard and they think this is a way to do it. But about half really do not believe in the system. They gave up hope a long time ago, and they're just bilking the system for anything they can. And they treat their staffers like, if they might treat their staffers well, but only in much as, as it's like, hey, you're a co-conspirator in bilking the system. We know not, we're not going to really change anything. Just enjoy the ride. And the other half treat them like, you know, whatever, you're just a stupid intern who came in and, you know, you want to work for me and help me get, you know, big corporate handouts and you know, you don't want to get paid for it because you believe in this principle. Well, great for me. I'll just make money off your stupid ass. And that happens a lot. Um, so it is about half and half. I mean, there's about half these people really are believers and the other half really, they have either have given up their hope or they never believed in it to begin with and are, are absolutely hoping to bilk the system. And they realize that politics is a great way to make money if they're not particularly good at making money themselves. Unless they're in politics, because they go in thousandaires and come out millionaires. And yeah. <laughs> my limited experience um, was really uh, due to a, a friend of mine who worked on campaigns and, and with um, state senators. And, and now I think U.S. Senator, he worked in the mayor's office uh, in the city I was living in. And so I, I got to be around some of those things with like election night parties and, and functions and things like this. And, and so I'd see a little bit beyond it and hear some of the stories from the staffers and things like that. And then when I read Hayek's Why the Worst Rise to the Top, I was like, oh, yeah. This is exactly correct. Yeah. You know, you, you see how these people get into these positions. And, and even if they had good intentions, true believers going in, how it gets corrupted and co-opted 
uh, just with all the different forces that that go into um, getting in positions like that. Like if, if someone's even in the position to be elected or electable, you know, they're already bought and paid for to even be in that position. So and that's just another strike against the whole, um, you know, voting uh, philosophy. We're not going to vote our way to freedom. Sorry. Uh, I, don't, I don't see that being a, a viable option. Um, maybe as an educational tool like Ron Paul did, but. A, yeah, would, that 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 would be my use for it is as an educational tool on the platform. At this point, I mean, that's one of the reasons I went from being a minarchist to an anarchist was seeing that uh, the system is not set up in such a way as to allow for success because to govern well in a monopolistic system economically, you're going to be losing money because you know in a monopoly, you're, I mean, the basic economics of it in a monopoly, you are taking up all the marginal output that that economy can afford. To a particular service being provided, in this case, government services. So, since you can't, on the margin, extract any more income or revenue from the society or the economy that you're governing, the only thing you can do is to cut costs and try to maintain your level of revenue and cut your costs as low as possible. Which is one of it's the basic reason why government offers bad services at high prices. Because in order to offer good services at low prices, it would be giving up marginal revenue available to it that it you know it can't expand beyond whereas you know in private firms there's no there is no marginal limit necessarily because there's always going to be multiple competitors trying to attain that marginal revenue limit and their very action of producing new goods increases the margin whereas government cannot in any way itself produce new goods because it only takes goods all right i think that's a good uh, final summary to maybe close on unless we want to get robert's um final word on this particular topic before we say goodnight again into no 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 that was that's done perfectly i'm glad you asked him that question because that was a great answer excellent work (laughs) all right well if just in case you audience members haven't had enough manliness and uh patriarchy uh we're going to continue a bit longer in kathleen turner overdrive uh but this has been episode 172 of this show and uh, Professional Asshole has been our guest. Thank you so much for joining us for this. And we'll uh, be looking forward to having you back on uh, in a few months' time uh, on whichever thing you want that is not in the DC universe. Gonna have to go it Marvel, isn't already man. monopolized. I'm going to have to go on Marvel. Oh, it's, it's a fucking tragedy, man. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, audience. And uh, send us some reviews. Give subscribes on the YouTube. Send us some more money. Uh, whatever you got. You know, we need uh, Dr. Dre needs to buy a new uh, Ferrari Testarossa. Um, Something like that. Anyway, so we'll say uh, maximum freedom. Peace out, everyone. The Chipmunks. C-H-I-P-M-U-N-K. We're the chipmunks, guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do. days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, 
the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com.